Hello, and welcome to this Institute for Government event to discuss why does the UK underinvest in public service infrastructure and how can the problem be fixed? Um, I guess we've all uh, heard about this most recently in relation to the revelations around the existence of reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete, a term I did not know um, until very recently, uh, in our schools and other public buildings. But this question of the poor state of public service infrastructure is not a new one, um, and it's perhaps only just been brought to the fore again uh, with this more recent controversy. Um, so I'm really delighted that we're here today to discuss this question. I'm Gemma Tetlow, the Chief Economist here at the Institute for Government. Um, thank you all for joining us. Um, this afternoon, we want to discuss what is the problem uh, with investment in public service infrastructure in the UK? Why are we where we are? And perhaps what could be done differently in future? Um, to discuss that, I'm delighted that we're joined by four uh, expert panellists with a range of experiences on this topic. Um, so we have Lord Gus O'Donnell, um, former Cabinet Secretary and former Permanent Secretary at the Treasury. We have uh, Anita Charlesworth here in the room, um, who is now Director of Research at the Health Foundation, but also formerly led the public spending team within the Treasury, so has seen this from various angles. Uh, also in the room, we have Chris Giles, who's Economics Editor at the Financial Times and has covered UK fiscal policy for many years. Um, uh, and joining us online, we're also very pleased to have Edwin Lau, um, who is head of uh, the Infrastructure and Public Procurement Division uh, of the Public Governance Directorate at the OECD. So we're delighted to have Edwin to provide a bit of perspective on how other countries deal with this problem and whether we are uh, unique or what we can learn from other countries' approaches. Just a few brief housekeeping things before we get started. Um, for people watching online, please do start putting your questions in the Q&A function on Slido. We will come to some of those um, once we've done opening remarks and uh, chaired discussion with the panelists. We will be live tweeting this event from at IFG events using the hashtag, hashtag IFG infrastructure. So please do follow and tweet along or whatever we do these days. Um, but without further ado, um, I'll turn to our panellists. So, Gus, let me start with you. Thank you. Um, give me five minutes on this subject, which is <laughs> quite a big subject, so I shall speak quickly. Um, first of all, just the history. Remember um, pre-New Labour, them coming in and noticing the fact that, you know, Anita was doing one-year spending reviews, mm -hmm. but at this point, there was no distinction between current and capital in the budgets. Uh, so there was, if we got into trouble, we, the Treasury, as I was obviously Treasury then, you just cut the capital budget because that's the simplest thing. You can do it really quickly, and that helped uh, sorted things out. So um, Silver Book, uh, Ed and I edited. Um, we start with a uh, golden rule, um, and we have a golden rule to say, you know, borrow only uh, to, to meet current spending, and then, but, you know, what, what controls total spending, what controls investment, so you have... We looked around, and it's interesting how the economics then didn't give you a particularly great answer as to what the kind of right answer to this fiscal sustainability problem. There's lots uh, I could talk about there, but I know you've done golden rules, so I'm going to be quite quick on that. Anyway, we ended up with a thing called the sustainable investment rule, which was a, a debt rule. Um, but you can imagine the OBR thinking about some kind of sustainability rule and using that as something to assess uh, government's... Uh, policies, fiscal policies, in the same way that the Climate Change Committee assesses uh, um, the various green things. Um, but let, let's get on to kind of some of the more nitty gritty stuff. You know, why do we, even with golden rules, uh, tend to underinvest? My, my kind of list of things, number one, well, there's no money now. Uh, and that's because we've underinvested in the past. So there's a backlog on maintenance. Um, so you can do a lot without it appearing that you're actually improving the capital stock. Um, you've got a lot of current problems because you haven't invested the capital to invest to solve the current problems. So, so you've inherited. So it's the last lot's fault, which is a really good answer for politicians. Um, blame the predecessors. Uh, secondly, think about the uh, incentive structures that we set up. I mean, this is all Anita's fault, obviously. But if you're in a spending team, um, you know, and you're in a department and you go to Anita and say, we're going to overspend, we're going to overspend, she will kill you, right? Um, but if you say we're going to underspend, oh, it's fine, right? Okay, we'll take that, we'll use that somewhere else. Uh, the NAO, God bless them. Do I love the NAO. Um, when do they ever think about this subject other than 
you know, imposing, uh, you know, well, you, you did this capital project, it came in over, over budget, you know, let's look at failures, uh, let's look at them ex post. You know, if there's one thing I could do, it would be, NAO, if you actually want to make a difference, you want to make things better, couldn't you look at capital projects ex ante, not ex post? Please. Anyway, they don't. So there we are. Um, projects, you know, the, the fact is, you know, when you look at projects and they come up, quite often they disappoint. Uh, one of the reasons for this is government is a bit of a mug as a client, right? It, it's quite, you know, they, they are easy to kind of say, quite often they're a, the only one buying. Uh, you, know, you, you, you know, how many people can, can deliver for you a, a, a nuclear trident submarine? You know, it, it's, it's really hard. Um, so, you know, a lot of power is with the contractor. Once you're halfway through, you know, they can start pushing the price up. So you look at a lot of capital projects and they seem to have failed. So you can understand why people, you know, and, and Jim O'Neill write this thing about capital projects beginning with H always fail, you know, and looks that way. Uh, why, why do we do this? And obviously, given that government in the middle can change the rules sometimes, if you're the private sector, you're going to impose a risk premium because of that. So there are lots of reasons why these sorts of things fail. And then when you think about why do we underinvest in particular kinds of capital projects, if you're a politician and you're thinking about, actually, I quite like capital projects because I get to cut the ribbon on the new hospital, the new school. The... So that's going to bias you towards things that you can finish. And maintenance is never going to buy you. You're not going to cut a ribbon on maintenance. So I found that politically, it's really hard to get ministers to really commit to some of the kind of basic stuff about maintenance, but they love their glossy new things, even when the glossy new thing may be relatively poor value for money. My final point is, if you actually want to get these things right, we really need to make sure that the cost benefit is done correctly in the first place. At the moment, there's every incentive on all the players in, in the world to make these things look much better than they are. You know, we've got an OBR, we've got an MPC. Maybe we could have something that actually does uh, micro for once and looks at proper cost-benefit analysis. That's my five minutes. Thank you very much, Gus. Anita, so possibly a bit of a chance to come back on Gus's characterization of you at the Treasury. But... <laughs> <laughs> actually, I feel a dinosaur. I was quite good at spending money. Um, but... Uh, uh, um, so I, I'm going to focus on the NHS. And in particular, I think the quantum of capital obviously matters. But over the last decade, what we've seen in the health service is that we've, we have in no year spent the amount of capital we were allocated. So part of that is because of the issue that Gus said, where then the first point of call for everybody, despite the official separation of resource Dell and C Dell and Capital Dell, is that if there's any risk of overspending, that you you go to uh, uh, the, the the capital budget first. But but actually there are some systemic issues which I think make it hard to spend enough cap to spend the capital but also critically to spend the capital on the things that are really the best return. <clears throat> and so um, a couple of things in there which I think are, are really critical in this. The first is that perversely in an era of multi-year budgeting, the NHS has a multi-year revenue budget, but it has a single year capital budget, which is surreal. <clears throat> um, and so uh, that obviously, now actually you can, probably work this out. The other thing is that capital spending by and large looks backwards at, based on the assets that you've inherited, <coughs> what then is your share of the capital budget. That's the dominant feature in how you get your capital through the rules around <coughs> uh, uh, de depreciation, etc. And that does matter because obviously, you know, <clears throat> building things and then not maintaining them is, is really poor value for money. But it does presuppose that the, the assets that you were bequeathed historically are the assets that you want going forward. <clears throat> and actually, if you look at health policy over the last 20 and 30 years and the opportunity for it to be more effective and more efficient, Stated policy is to have a different asset mix to that which we've had in the past. In particular, the mix between buildings 
and for example, technology, new technology, we want to change. Yeah? So, <clears throat> and so we strategically underinvest in the capital that we've got in, for example, IT and new technology. That matters, obviously, for modernization, but it critically matters then because it's IT and technology that's almost certainly one of the big contributors to productivity going forward. <clears throat> the other thing we do is we say consistently in healthcare that we're a hospital-centric model. We need to move services out of the hospital. We need to have a really uh, different offer. We also need to join up with social care. We need to have pro more preventative medicine. And yet we underinvest in primary care and in those community facilities. We don't understand how to shift the investment from the, if you like, the renewal and the hospital-based project into that transformative investment. And it's not clear who's accountable for transformative investment. So <clears throat> obviously a legacy of the sort of market reforms is that you've got individual providers with individual boards, yeah? <clears throat> there, there, are, there are weak incentives, but some incentives for them to invest in their own organization. But actually there are no incentives for them to give up capital to invest in something new which unlocks system gain and how to get that kind of system to work more effectively. <clears throat> Neither in terms of, and, and to emphasise, is, um, is there any real accountability for that? So, you know, one of the challenges we've got is managers last about two years in leading organisations. So, very, you know, they get a lot of grief and, <clears throat> and no long term. In, in the UK, we restructure our organisations. Uh, in healthcare every few years, so none of those bodies are going through the pain. Asset sales are obviously really often really important to this. Asset sales are a nightmare to get, th to, to get through. Why would you try? <coughs> yeah, it harms you. And then no regulator is ever asking you about the extent to which you're really effectively acting as the steward for your, or your organisation and your system for the uh, longer term. And there's no independent assessment of where the money is needed and where it would be optimised. Interestingly, we do, in healthcare, we do have an independent body um, the, it, called ACRA, Advisory Group on Resource Allocation, that advises on where the money should go for day-to-day -day spending. So we have both multi-year budgets and needs-based allocation for day-to-day -day spending, and we have none of that infrastructure in for capital investment. So it does seem to me that actually um, just looking at some of the things that we use and do in terms of our day-to-day -day spending and thinking about how we could develop those for uh, capital would, uh, would really help. <clears throat> and then we need to change some of the accountability assessments that regulators both service regulators. So, you know, if you're running a system, to what extent, obviously, are you running it well today? You get really clear CQC and others that, to what extent, actually, are you putting in place and leading the change? That means that that, that system is fit for purpose in the future. And who holds you account for productivity? Nobody, yeah. Brilliant, thank you very much, Anita. Chris, you've been covering this for a long time. Why are we here? I, I have been coming for a long time. Um, why are we here? Well, I think we just a few facts about where we are first. So in the UK, we do have low total investment. So we're roughly 18% of GDP, whereas OECD average and EU average is roughly 22. So that's quite a big difference for points in GDP. But our public investment isn't notably low. We often say it's really low, but it's, we're roughly 3%. It hasn't always been 3%, but at the moment it's roughly 3%, which is pretty close to the OECD average. Clearly, there's some definitional problems about what is public. You think about a water company in this country compared with water com uh, companies in other countries. But the bigger problem is low total investment, not low necessarily low public investment. Um, there's a few things I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't blame, although they're often given the blame. One is accountancy rules. I can't remember how many times I've covered the move from cash accounts to accruals accounts, and that was supposed to help the problem from moving from government to whole, whole of government accounts, I think, 15 years ago. That was supposed to solve the maintenance problem, um, but clearly hasn't. Privatisation was supposed to do the same, because private companies would think about the long term, not the short term. All of the, these things are not clearly not the problem, because we've tried them all and they haven't worked. I'd say the same applies to fiscal rules. This is the current fashion. It would be all fine if we had a net, wor a net worth rule and I think that's just uh, 
essentially, the only reason people say that is they think you can, you can borrow and spend more with that, and that would solve the problem. But I don't think it will, because debt sustainability is quite complicated and borrowing more. You cannot, for example, easily sell your road network unless you expect whoever's going to buy it to charge for it, and then that's no different from raising taxes, which is always what governments can ultimately do to make themselves fiscally more secure. Um, so what do I blame? I think, one thing, I think one thing that is increasingly clear is the costs of public investment are much higher in this country. So there's lots of studies that are suggesting, for, particularly for big infrastructure, twice, three times, five times for rail than in other countries. A lot of that has to do with land prices. So, you know, some of it is just NIMBYs and, you know, you have to make, make sure that it goes in deeper cuttings, etc. But also, we have very expensive land if we want to buy it. Um, HS2 has had to do a lot of that, uh, particularly in central London. That is not in any way cheap. But also, we have in our public realm massive inconsistencies. So if you go back was about 16 years to the Eddington review of, I think, 2007, that said what we need to do is exactly what Gus says we need to do. We have to do a lot of small projects, roundabouts, things that bottlenecks, sort all those sorts of things out, and not grand projects or grand projects. And, but at the moment, we're just trying to do the biggest grand project at all, and it's not going very well. Uh, we also have feast and famine, so we have times when we, where it's really necessary to improve the public finances when we cut things, and then other times a, a new politician called Boris Johnson or someone like that comes in and says, no, actually what we really need to do is build lots of shiny new things, and when you do it, when you're having feasts go to famine and you've not got consistency, it makes it all the problems Gus was talking about, about being the client who gets mugged, uh, get even more difficult. But the big thing I want, so the long-term plans are really important. The big thing, I think, which really applies to the UK, which applies to the whole of our investment being low, is that we don't really like investment. We like consumption in this country. And it's not because we don't underinvest because we uh, are, are also not consuming very much, which might apply to some countries like Germany, for example. We've run a persistent current account deficit for as long as I can remember, and if we genuinely want to invest more, we really have to consume less. And that is very, very difficult in this country. So uh, the one thing I think we need to look hard at ourselves, and not necessarily just at governments or officials, is uh, thinking about what sort of country we want to live in. And if we want it to be better in the long term, that means we have to make some sacrifices now. Thank you very much. So Edwin, let me come to you last. So we in the UK have been obsessing about why is our public service infrastructure so poor? And as you've heard, concerns about failure to maintain the service infrastructure that we have, repeated governments under-investing or planning capital spending, then raiding it to use for day-to-day -day spending. Are we unusual in the UK compared to other countries? Do other countries manage to get a better balance between spending for future gain versus uh, immediate benefit? So thank you very much. Um, picking up on Chris's point, I think that the issue of investment or underinvestment is not a particular one for the UK. In fact, we see a cumulative gap of about 18 trillion uh, 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 investments required between now and 2040 to reach the sustainable uh, uh, development goals. So this is a, a big problem and it's one that the G20 infrastructure working group has been grappling with to try to fill that gap. Of course, the focus there is mainly on the developing and emerging markets, but we know that even for OECD countries, there continues to be a significant gap. Part of the issue is going to be about increasing investment, but it's also about how to make the most of the, the existing investment. And McKinsey has estimated that up to 25% of public investment is lost through waste. Uh, uh, and um, so how can we, we do that? And in fact, uh, I began my work on infrastructure back in 2007, uh, looking at uh, uh, the school building program in uh, Ireland. And in fact, they were using innovative methods such as land banking uh, in order to uh, account for uh, a growing population. And so therefore, bringing in this kind of foresight element into their infrastructure investment. And so I think that gets to the point of 
how we need to find innovative solutions and we don't want to stifle them. And so, in fact, RAC at the time when it was introduced in the 50s and 60s was a, a type of innovation. And I don't think that people really uh, at the time, yes, it was a cheap alternative, but did not really know that within 30 years or so it would start to degrade. So what we need to think about is how do we allow these types of uh, innovations to take place while at the same time, in particular, when there's a health and safety dimension, making sure that we have the appropriate accompanying risk management and monitoring tools uh, to make sure that we understand what the impact of, of, of these untried approaches is. Um, I think that what we're seeing is growing amount of new and uh, innovative approaches, such as uh, digital twins, uh, using asset management data to be able to better predict uh, the 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 life of the assets and how it is going to uh, 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 change over time. And I know that the UK National Infrastructure Strategy does take some of these things into account. So the question is, why isn't more of it being done? We know that just over half of OECD countries already take uh, mechanisms to monitor and mitigate environment uh, and climate change risks into their operation, maintenance, and decommissioning of infrastructure. Uh, but uh, in fact, most of this is really about the upfront costs and, and the operation and, and uh, decommissioning is, is, is much less taken into account. So part of this is simply building or developing the methodologies to be able to do so. And in fact, while 97% of OECD countries look at construction costs in their affordability estimates, only 42% take decommissioning into account. So we're not really introducing this life cycle approach into, into our methodology. Secondly, less than half of OECD countries um, uh, for which data is available look at climate change adaptation measures, uh, integrating it into the design of their transport and infrastructure projects. So I, part of this is that we don't have the methodologies, we don't necessarily have the data, but we certainly don't want to think about these long-term costs. So, um, and then I want to come back to Gus's point as well with regard to the fact that maintenance is just not a sexy topic for politicians. Uh, I worked on um, the with the Italian uh, government in 2021 uh, for their infrastructure working group where they really put infrastructure maintenance as the top of the agenda. And just all of the grumbling, especially from uh, uh, lower income countries saying, oh, these are rich country problems, uh, these issues, uh, we just need to get the infrastructure out there. And so you're driving up costs. But in fact, what we're seeing is that um, it's precisely this uh, risk-based approach uh, that depends on monitoring and maintenance that will allow uh, our infrastructure assets to last longer, and therefore we can get more value for money uh, out of the, the, the life of the infrastructure. Um, and we see that in most OECD countries for which data is available, asset management, well, we look at the transport sector because it's probably one of the more advanced sectors um, that they, that the use of data-driven, predictive, or rule-based, the majority of countries are actually moving from rule-based or reactive approaches to maintenance. So say like every four years, we'll, we'll do an intervention to more data-driven uh, approaches. 79% uh, in the transport sector have now moved to this kind of data-driven approach. So technology is going to be a key driver. Uh, perhaps I just finish up by saying that uh, the OECD is producing a report on infrastructure resilience uh, that will be published in 2024. Um, and we're also beginning to think about what are the broader impacts beyond rebuilding of infrastructure to look at um, the broader implications for the economy. Um, so, for example, on um, the supply chain during COVID or else even on the um, uh, the what we did a review of the Seine River Basin, looking at this sort of once every hundred year floods, that the costs go far beyond the immediate rebuilding costs for the for the infrastructure, and in fact have a broader economy uh, impact on the economy as a whole. And so, really taking that big picture is going to help, I think, uh, rebalance uh, the the concerns that come up when it, when uh, the discussions are on the cost of infrastructure investment. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Um, I want to pick up first on the point that Chris made about we need as a country to accept that if we want good capital, that means less consumption today. And that is a choice we have to make. I wonder, particularly Anita Gus, do you agree with that? Is that a big part of what I'm facing? Um, it really depends who's going to do the investing. So uh, there's a wall of money out there to invest in green stuff, right? Uh, I know because I'm on the board of Brookfield. We've just raised, you know, 
are billions and billions um, to invest in green infrastructure globally. Um, we'd love to do it, you know, but if you've got a government that's so incompetent that we end up with a wind auction with the price set too low for anyone to bid, I mean, I, I just, you know, words fail me on that. Um, and the whole previous generation of wind contracts, which, you know, wow, you know, offshore wind, brilliant, you know, it's going to be great. Actually, it's not. It's not going to be built because they all bid too low. There's no penalty clauses in the contracts, so nothing's going to happen. So you need, you know, th there's all sorts of things we could do to get private sector infrastructure in there. So it's not requiring you to increase, to reduce consumption today. Obviously, that will be a contract uh, delivering uh, energy for the future so that, you know, there'll be future taxpayer consequences. I think one of the issues, though, is, of course, all of that green stuff requires a national grid, which requires you to invest now. So there is an element, I think, in what Chris has said, that actually we do need to think about, uh, particularly if we've quite been living beyond our means, uh, do we need to find a way to actually say uh, we do need to increase our, our level of investment now and accept the fact that um, that will be a, a kind of dip uh, for, and we'll have to finance that by current taxation. Yeah. So, yeah, that will be... Now, politically, that's really hard. But, I mean, to the extent that our topic today is public services specifically, so abstracting a, a bit from that other kind of infrastructure, yeah. Yeah. is that...? Well, I'm, I mean, to my mind, uh, well, I mean, Anita was talking about public services. Mm. You know, there's all sorts of things we can do. We were just talking beforehand about digital in, in health. I mean, there's amazing numbers of things we could do on public services to digitise. You know, just look at the Estonians, for God's sake. You know, they're miles ahead of us. Um, we could do a lot which would be uh, beneficial over the medium term. Now, I think if you go back to 97, I'm, I'm old, I do that. Uh, remember, they were coming in, uh, New Labour, and they signed up to uh, the Conservative spending plans. And, and Gordon's phrase was prudence for a purpose. And indeed, they signed up to the spending plans to get, quotes, market credibility on the fiscal stuff, and then were able to spend more. Uh, I think Labour may or may not sign up to the spending plans. It's completely different. These spending plans are totally unsustainable. We know that. They, they do not, uh, they are nothing like the spending plans inherited in 97. Mm. So the prudence for a purpose thing doesn't quite work. So they will have to think about doing something more dramatic if they do want to increase investment straight away. And I would say um, that uh, we do need to think about those link between those investments and our future growth rate. You know, I mean, you know, these are not unrelated. You know, good infrastructure will mean we can increase our potential growth rate. If you increase your potential growth rate, wow, you know, if you're in the treasury, it suddenly, it releases everything, right? The fiscal rules are much easier to meet and, and everything else. So we do need to kind of emphasize quite a lot of why these investments are good it may not be GDP growth. It may be actually improving people's lives in mm -hmm. terms of health and other education and other things. But I think it's, it's essential that we find a way to do it. I think, I think one of the challenges we've got is that <clears throat> what's happening in terms of often underinvestment in capital is not very transparent. Uh, and actually, um, departments and treasury often have in spending rules and stuff a joint incentive to understate um, some of the opportunity yeah. costs of prioritising some of the sh short term. So there's a, <clears throat> a, an incentive failure and then a lack of transparency and accountability. So I think if you, so at the moment, the, uh, so the public may prefer consumption and I, I think your point still stands. But actually, whether they prefer consumption as much as we're current, we've been doing, I, I think there, there may be scope, actually, to shift rather more. I think if you say to people, look, you know, we're, we're, we're not maintaining our hospitals. We're not investing in basic technology that enable you to, to access services more e efficient. We're not um, adapting people's homes so that actually they can live independently and not require so much social care support because actually the physical environment means they can have a shower rather than get into a bath. <clears throat> All those sorts of things, actually, we haven't really built any mechanism for public pressure for a better balance between investment 
and consumption. And so uh, it's not a panacea, but I think it might help because I think people do understand. Um, that, and they sort of assume still quite often that the people running things run them quite well, you know, and, and do. And so quite often, you know, they're actually quite shocked at these things. So they assume that, well, of course, you know, you ought to be maintaining the buildings. You're not doing that. You know, well, no, um, we're not. Which, and no one wants to tell you about that. Um, because what do we do? I mean, if you're the manager of the service, what do you, you know, you just get everyone scared. Mm. The roof might fall in. And if you're a politician, even an opposition politician, everybody colludes <coughs> in pretending that it's all better than it is. Well, I don't, I don't disagree, and I certainly would like, I think, uh, the public realm in this country is pretty shabby. So I think it is, there is a real need to uh, prioritise uh, capital investment um, more than it is now. But I just think what politicians will have to do, and it comes up in many things, as, as Gus says, the public spending plans are not feasible uh, post-2025. And we sort of know the answer is that we have to tax a bit more. Uh, and it doesn't mean necessarily a lot more, a couple of percent of GDP. Mm. Uh, it will be noticed. Don't pretend it won't be noticed. It will be noticed. But that is what we are going to have to do. And if we want to have... And then we have to just take the, the very... And then just accept... If we can get it to be reasonably um, accepted on all sides of the political spectrum that we want to make the public realm a better place, then it, we want to sort of take the politics out of a lot of these things because just keeping your hospitals uh, that the rain doesn't come through the roof is, is pretty basic and it's not really something of high po political uh, art, I don't think. So that's just, I think, where we, we have to get to. Um, and I'm not the right person to say how we exa exactly get there, but the, the best politicians should be able to do that. So in um, an after report that was written by Sam Friedman and Alison Wolf earlier in the year, they picked up on the fact that we may now actually be at the point that one of the things dragging on NHS productivity is actually the poor quality of the buildings that staff are trying to operate in. And actually we're throwing so much money into employing more staff, but they can't work very effectively because of the conditions they're in. Do you think that's a broader problem across public services? And is there a way of understanding better those interactions between the quality of the capital that you're working with uh, and what your staff are able to produce in the way that we set spending to actually try and get a more appropriate balance? I certainly think the digital transformation agenda is a really important cross-public services issue. And obviously we had our fingers burnt at... I mean, so we're not very good necessarily at building railways. We've also had some really quite big false starts in attempting to digitise some of our public services <coughs> and being good purchasers of, <coughs> of, 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 of that. So, you know, um, <coughs> uh, all those issues are very real. <coughs> it's also quite a challenge because to get the benefit of digitisation, you tend to have to do a couple of things, yeah? You get real benefit when you do it at system level, yeah? So things like interoperability, you know, actually it isn't something where lots of little pilot projects and everyone going on their own delivers the, uh, unlocks the real uh, game changing. And then, off, and then often you have to, um, to get the really big savings, you then have to do channel shift. And you actually have to, rather than proliferate channels, you have to close down some channels, yeah? And so digitization is undoubtedly really critical to productivity, also actually to quality improvement. It, it, it unlocks new uh, 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 potential um, in things like healthcare, you know, for machine learning and AI and stuff, which also unlocks uh, quality and you've got this huge asset there. But um, realising that that benefit is both a funding challenge and managerial and technical challenge and a really big kind of procurement challenge uh, 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 as, as well. And, and, um, and then add, overlaid on that is that actually, you know, all the issues about the failure to communicate the real benefit of digitisation and the fears about data security and all of those issues. So the, it's, it's a really big agenda, I think, to deliver on that, of which money is part of it. But that, you know, we spend a huge amount of public money on 
people doing manual processing. Uh, and also, almost all of the big quality failures that we have across our public services are the failure to communicate information, the failure to share information, the failure to understand and act upon information falling between the cracks. But people assume that you are doing that, but it's all paper-based and fragmented. I, I would just absolutely, completely agree with all that. The one bit I'd add is, whenever we think about capital uh, in the public sector, we think about roads and stuff like that. We don't ever think about social capital, for example. We don't ever think about communities, what the charitable sector can do. Um, you know, and we just think of it as, you know, we need, we need to build another road. And when you look at the way in which we've allocated the money, it turns out that's exactly what's happened with the levelling up fund and all of that. It's gone to basic um, roads and stuff like that when actually there's lots of other things which probably have quite a much higher rate of return. But I would definitely, I wouldn't worry, I mean, maintain the buildings, but I don't think you're going to get a massive productivity gain by changing the buildings. I mean, you know, we're, we're working from home now, you know. Um, but I would say improving the digital infrastructure would be, that's where I put the money now. Edwin, I could see you nodding away as Anita was talking about digital transformation. Uh, is anyone managing to do this well, this whole scale transformation? Yes. Well, I, so I wish I could say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, I would, I, I mean, I recognize a lot of the issues that Anita is mentioning uh, with regard to the challenges of digitalization. I think what is interesting in the infrastructure sector is that these are observable assets. So uh, while it's important to have good administrative data, we can also use satellite imagery. We can also use sort of heat sensing equipment to look at the quality of the state of the quality of our infrastructure. And we should be using more of that to get immediately to the outcomes, the desired outcomes to monitor the, the quality of infrastructure. So that we call this infratech. Uh, and I think that this is something where uh, there are some, some low-hanging fruit that could be gained uh, by just improving the monitoring of infrastructure, first of all. I think that's the, the, that's the, the, the first step. But then the, the second step is really going to be uh, updating our legislation so that it allows us to be more agile in how we manage infrastructure in order to, uh, once again, be more proactive and less reactive. Great. Thank you. Let's come now to questions from the audience. So please put your hand up if you've got a question. I'll take a batch of a few. Um, come to Martin. Um, I'll take the gentleman on the aisle. Take those two first, and then I'll see who else. Martin Wheatley, I, I worked here for a bit, and then I did some work for the Commission of Smart Government on government financial management. And back in ancient history, I too worked in the Treasury and public spending. Um, uh, Chris touched on it, but um, I, 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 I'm slightly surprised the conversation hasn't had more to say about the phrase balance sheet. Mm. It's very striking to me when I was researching for the Commission on Government Financial Management, talking to people um, in, in doing financial strategy in major corporates, it's also clear to me as someone involved in, in managing housing not-for-profits that you live or die by your balance sheet, really, in, in, in large parts of the corporate world. And certainly, housing associations I'm involved in, if we didn't take care of our balance sheet, we would fall over very rapidly. We'd, lenders are massively interested in our balance sheet, um, uh, whether we have good quality balance sheet information and how we use it, and, um, and, and, and things go um, well or less well for housing organisations as a result. So. Chris touched on it. Yes, we got hold of government accounts, but the sort of information seems to be sort of locked away in the attic and no one's interested in it. So the question for the panel is, does it matter that the government is so uninterested in its balance sheet data? And, and, and what, what can it do to get better at interpreting and using that balance sheet data to guide improved decisions? I'll take a batch for a few and then we can... I'm a student at UCL. I'm just wondering, based on not just like NIMBYism and thinking about like HS2 and Michael Gove's Cambridge fan, but also in incidents like Croydon and Woking, borough councils and their overspending, are local governments too powerful and potentially have too much ability to build stuff poorly and block stuff, or are they not powerful enough? 
Great. And actually, I'll add to that one that's come in online, who, which uh, from Graham Pendlebury, who said more focus on maintenance and small schemes would require more devolution to local and regional authorities. Do you see the prospect of that happening? So to put the, the other side of that. Um, great. And come to my colleague, Nick, who also had his hand up in the first round. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hello, Nick Davies, Institute for Government. I wanted to ask about PFI. Um, we talked about the kind of wall of money looking to invest in energy. Um, and clearly, PFI was a very expensive way of borrowing that money, but it did lead to a very big investment in public service infrastructure and new labour despite inheriting a pretty benign economic situation and deliverable spending plans still used it extensively to build a lot of hospitals and schools. So is it worth thinking about some form of PFI as a commitment device to sacrificing a bit of short-term consumption in order for that long-term investment? Great, thank you. So we've got three questions. One about the balance sheet, should that have more focus within government? One about the role, the pros and cons of giving more responsibility to local uh, decision makers. Um, and one about the use of private finance and the trade-off between it being more expensive but being a commitment device for public money. Um, Gus, I'll come to you first. Can I do the PFI one? You may do the PFI So, Because um, I'm really interested in PFI, as, as some of the audience will know. I was very anti-PFI um, because what I couldn't quite understand was the one thing the Treasury does unambiguously better than the private sector is borrow money. Right? See, I probably don't, no, no, but it, it, we definitely do that cheaper than the private sector. So, so why were we relying on private sector finance, right? So in that sense, I think it's a bit bonkers, and I always did think it was a bit bonkers. Um, Shreeti and always argued that, well, you, you know, the private sector's got its money at risk and therefore they'll look after it and they'll do it better. I thought, well, can't we write a contract that does that? So for me, the way you get private sector investment involved is you think about what the, this is what comes back to the green, you know, the offshore wind thing. So we, you know, we want to, uh, people to invest in offshore wind. Well, we set up a, a regulatory regime, set up the right regime, and then we get the private sector to bid for you know, who, who can run it at the lowest cost, which is how the whole wind farm stuff took off. So you can do these things. I think we have to be smart about the way we do it. And I think most of the original PFIs were a bit of a monk's game. They were, um, they were uh, exploiting the fact that we would, you know, the Treasury building itself is an example uh, which was pretty expensive and um, expensive borrowing. So I think we can borrow a lot, but we should think about what the private sector is really good at is running projects. And if you can't write the contract, you know, uh, set up the, the way in which it's going to be run so, so it works uh, best. That's what I'd say on PFI. Great. Do you want me to? Do you want to take any of the others? Or? Well, the, the LAs, I, th I think that there's a lot to be said. You know, we've, going back to Hammersmith and Fulham, we could talk about, John could talk about it even better than me, much better than me. Um, you know, we'd be very worried in Treasury about uh, local authorities uh, having the capacity to borrow and do dumb things. And um, it, I, I wish it were that they built lots of stuff that they shouldn't have built, but actually they, they bought lots of property and stuff. They speculated in a, in a really... You know, uh, and I say this as again on the board of Brookfield, who own a lot of property. And oh boy, you know, local authorities buying this, right? So we're not, you know, going anywhere near it. Um, so uh, I think yes to local authorities doing, uh, you know, devolving more things when we can do it sensibly within a, a structure. But we do need uh, to make sure that they're very well advised on on how to do this, and they don't go in for. You know, well, we think we can outguess the market and what's going to happen to property prices. I mean, that's, that's I think, pretty dumb. Uh, and balance sheets, you know, trying to get governments to focus on balance sheets and, and trying to get good data on balance sheets. You know, we I'm spent forever trying to do this, you know. And, and where do you draw the line, you know, what, about natural capital and all the rest of it? You can go broader and broader on that. So I, I, I've kind of... In theory, they're absolutely right. In practice, I've never found ways to get politicians really focused on, on balance sheets. In a, in a sense that if you're a private sector company, you have to. You don't in the public sector. You know, we, we, we live with unfunded pension liabilities that are massive. And you talk to chancellors about putting them on the balance sheet. 
and they laugh at you, right? Because it's huge. And it makes the, makes the finances look horrible. And say, thanks very much, Gus, and, and off you go, you know. They're not going to do it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of gave up on balance sheets. Anita? Uh, I wanted to argue, I think, for, to, to both points, actually, about the importance of most like regulatory intermediaries. So I, th I think the local government tail, in part, is really cautionary one for the loss of a body like the Audit Commission. I don't say the Audit Commission was perfect, but actually, if you're a local citizen, I mean, you know, theoretically, you're relying on political accountability, but political accountability mm. obviously depends on good information. Uh, and often good information is, is lacking. So one of the ways in which we improve our focus on the long term, that we, we, we improve the quality of our decision making, is we try to ensure that we create bodies that take da data, that improve data, and then they take data and neutrally explain what the implications of some of that is in order to inject that more into the political process. So I, I do think with things like the balance sheet, it's actually quite difficult to get politicians directly interested in that. But the interesting question is, what's the role of organisations like NAO, etc., in providing much more meaningful understanding of what that is, and then, and then parliamentary scrutiny and the role of public accounts committees and, and um, economic affairs committees in the Lords, probably the Lords, and also the common, I'm looking at Norman Warner, he's like, job for the, you know, this is the sort of thing that the House of Lords is really importantly, and, but strengthening that and empowering people so that that, that knowledge is there is really, is really, really important. I'll just say one thing on balance sheets. Uh, Martin asked a very good question. I think on a very, very macro level, uh, when you go to the sort of the whole balance sheet, you sort of start getting into really rather esoteric things. So the biggest asset government has, long-term asset, is the ability to tax people in the future. I mean, how, how do you write that down? I have, no, I, I have no idea. But on the micro level, I think it's really important that you ask a very good question. And how to get people interested. Maybe some other countries have had some, some real success in managing public assets and then flogging them, where, where they thought they didn't have a lot of value in them. Swedish forests and things like that are good examples of yeah. this. Yeah. Um, so that might be the way to get politicians interested, that we, the, the government owns a lot of stuff still, and if you could manage it well and see where you could generate value, where it's not generating value now, that could uh, be an alternative to taxation, ultimately. Mm -hmm. Not a big one. I'm not suggesting this answers our big questions, mm -hmm. but helps in the short term. Edwin, do you have anything to add on these questions? Sure. I wanted to address the issue of devolution. I think it's important, but it needs to be uh, supported by independent advice. Uh, and oftentimes there's a capability gap at the subnational level. And the other issue, which we're finding more and more arising within OECD countries, is how we conduct public consultation. And someone mentioned NIMBYism earlier. And what we have to ensure is that the public consultation uh, 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 mechanisms which are necessary and important are, do not become uh, a tool to protect vested interests. And especially with the climate transition, uh, there are a lot of property interests uh, which can use these uh, uh, processes to hold things up when in fact we need to maintain the public consultation at a policy level in terms of thinking about what the needs of uh, the country are. And I think that that is something that part and parcel with the role of the subnational government. And I think that just requires a shout out to our civil servants and how we need to ensure that we support their public sector uh, capacities. Uh, the discrepancy between uh, public and private pay in this sector is, is enormous. And yet we're asking people to manage value for money, to design contracts, to ensure that there is uh, not improper renegotiation of those contracts. So the stakes are enormous. Uh, and I'm not sure that uh, there's the proper preparation uh, for a, a fast-changing uh, environment, uh, in particular with climate transition. Great, thank you very much. So we've got a few more hands in the audience. I'm just trying to think you had the hand up before. So I'll go to the lady at the back first. Uh, now I'll take one at the front. Thank you. I'm not a politician, so no offence to anyone. Um, but I do have a ma uh, background in macroeconomics and have had experience on four continents. And I love what you said about communities. 
I think when, for instance, you're building a macroeconomic model on which to make a policy, the variables that you use and the school of thought are very important in the output that is going to come out. So if you don't have intersectionality in interpreting the data, um, and you, the output is going to um, be a problem. And I see this especially in Britain as we get more and more polarized, that things like health and education, which really support the country and takes a lot of money, um, becomes more and more polarized, and therefore you need more and more money um, to change the situation. Um, we, we can, I'll just make this point on health. We can talk about digitization. But when we talk about digitization, the um, boroughs that really um, could benefit from primary care, et cetera, it was, it's going, they're not going to benefit from digitization because they don't even have access um, to digital um, things. So it's going to um, benefit a certain group of people. And then when we talk about AI, how is the data going to be cleaned? How is it going to be interpreted? So we're going to get even a much more polarized thing in a few years down the line. We're just going to go back, as has been said, and try and repair it. So the way I look at it is let's have a more intersectional um, decision-making group at all levels. And that will reflect on the cultural variables that are happening and help us predict a lot better and perhaps cut the um, spending that we're having now. These are just some of the thoughts I'm thinking out loud. Thank you. Thank you. And second one down here. Greg Rosen, Senior Counsel at SEC Newgate. Um, thank you all. Many of you made the point that um, government isn't as intelligent a client as, as ideally it should be. Um, and this has been a very long-standing problem. Um, and a hugely important and big one, its impact. Who should, within government, take responsibility for solving this? And how should they? What levers should they pull to solve it? And if they haven't got any levers to solve it, how should they go about making sure they get some? Thank you. Um, and I'll throw into the mix uh, one from David Wood that's coming online that's somewhat related to that uh, last question from Greg. So David Wood says, this has been a great analysis of the issues, but why are we so incompetent at dealing with these? To what extent is this problem a fundamental one arising from democracy itself, and to what extent is it a lack of leadership in the right places? Which I think is a similar question. Um, so, Chris, can I start with you, well, please? I'll take just the last one. I think fundamentally, ultimately, it's... Uh, democracy rather than leadership. I don't see the civil service as being fundamentally bad. There's obviously some problems about sometimes people are not experienced and haven't been in their jobs a long time and they switch around, but actually the civil service is generally, I think, pretty good. Whether they're good at doing contracts, though, I mean, I think I'll leave that to Gus and Anita. Um, but I think, I, I'll go back to what I said, I think ultimately we have to look at ourselves and um, how we vote and we have to ask ourselves why is it just a little bit more in this country but very much the states is very similar to this uh, that we don't value uh, public infrastructure it seems as much as other countries and are more willing to vote for parties who will promise lots of things uh, in, in the here and now um, on, on that question, I, so there are, there are decisions taken, obviously, at civil service level, but I work in the NHS, and then an awful lot is then uh, uh, devolved uh, down. And I, I do think <clears throat> um, the permanent uh, reorganisation of some of those institutions doesn't help <clears throat> uh, at all, because you you know, by and large, um, to, these sorts of projects take a very long time, which then also comes back to the extent to which we focus on the big set-piece projects, which are inherently harder to deliver, versus Gus's point that actually, if we did lots of smaller projects, 
um, <clears throat> we might de-risk quite a lot of this and, and, and have more um, impact. I, I guess uh, to, to, the, to the point made about there are a couple of things which I think I, I want to say about that. I, I think you raise and, and Gus hinted at <clears throat> a really interesting question about what constitutes investment in a modern <clears throat> economy um, and whether or not our way of thinking about investment has caught up with, the, with, with what is the nature of the assets that we are creating and degrading at different times. And climate is, is, is one. Uh, um, I'm just about to publish a piece with some colleagues at Demos arguing that actually prevention spend suffers from exactly the same challenge as classic infrastructure uh, uh, capital spend. You know, the New Zealand model of the, what's the four capitals, thinking about your social capital, your human capital, your natural capital. I mean, intellectually, that seems, and understanding how <coughs> these things interconnect, that seems more intuitive. The other point you raise very importantly is the extent to which digital and AI can deepen inequality. And I think this is a really important question. <clears throat> and I think one of the things that's really important there is to think, at the moment, the state is providing very little leadership, a very little role in this. And we are receivers, essentially, and responders to an international market in these things, which is being governed by commercial imperative. So you look at all the wellness and well-being-y sort of uh, uh, sector and things like that. <clears throat> and to what extent do we get in and shape that? So the extent to which we're regulating the process and thinking about regulation of AI algorithms and who's in there and all of these sorts of things, because we make, we're making really big and profound decisions yeah, in a very unstructured way at the moment. I would say, yeah, just an answer to that question, I think there are three things. Firstly, institutional. If you think about the institutional structure, we have a National Infrastructure Commission, which you would think does all the right things because all of these big projects are interrelated. You know, we should have a big strategic plan. It doesn't seem to have any teeth. You know, it will come out with its uh, thing on, in October and will that guide the way, you know, there'll be a new strategic plan. Uh, will that guide what actually happens? Um, no. Um, will they have the capacity to do cost-benefit analysis of, of projects to see if they fit within this plan? No, not really. So, so I think that's one of the things, the institutions. And, and on top of the institutions, I tried to get the um, uh, coalition, you know, with the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, five years. Let's have a five-year spending review. Actually, if you want to be bold, have a 10-year spending review. Mm. Think about a 10-year capital plan. Why not? I mean, you know, like, come on, you know, go for it. Say you're going to be there forever. Um, and we've got three-year spending reviews. So I think institutionally, something wrong. On the civil service, I'm going to slightly disagree with Chris, because I do think we are lacking. Uh, and I do think the problem is that basically, if you're really interested in negotiating contracts, and you're really good at it, and you're really commercial, you get paid vastly more in the private sector, and you end up doing that. Uh, so we need to have much more freedom on paying people a lot more in the civil service for those sorts of things, right? So. They can negotiate really good contracts, but then it goes to the minister, and this comes back to the point about democracy. So, you know, in Brookfield, we've got a CEO who does this all his life. He's really good at it, right? Makes investment decisions. Um, and if he's not, it gets thrown out. Uh, we have ministers who, I mean, they may even, I mean, imagine they're really, really good at this stuff, but they've been there five minutes. Uh, you know, pensions ministers, nine in five years. I mean, you know, obviously it's a short-term project, you know, pensions. <laughs> yeah. um, so we do need to think about ministerial training in decision-making. This is the one thing I, I keep on about. You can't, you know, if they're going to move around, then you can't have them, you know, you can't understand defence or whatever. But they could understand decision-making under uncertainty. And they could understand that actually what, what's the kind of questions I should be asking? How should I be interrogating this data? Uh, what kind of structures will make sure that this actually happens and is implemented well? And I think democracy is going to struggle with that. Edwin, um, this may be the final word, given the timing, but uh, what's your take on these questions? I think that we have to treat infrastructure both as a technical issue, but above and beyond as a political issue. Uh, and I think that uh, in the United States, the bipartisan infrastructure bill did that. They, they swung big 
they made a link to people about how this was going to improve their lives, how this was going to improve not just the economy, but also sort of redress some old wrongs, speaking to the issue of intersectionality, because infrastructure has actually created harms. It's not always done good. So by really speaking to people about the, the role that infrastructure plays, a central role in the quality of their lives, in fact, that investment, political investment, has led to a whole number of changes in how the United States invests its infrastructure spending. So now they have a White House infrastructure coordinator, Mitch Landrieu, who's helping to do all of this coordination. I think that if they had started with that, without that big push, political push, they never would have gotten as far as they did. So I do think that leadership is an important component here. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm sorry, that does bring us to the end of our time. And apologies to those in the audience here and online who we didn't manage to get to your questions. Um, I think it's been a really interesting discussion. Um, we're going to carry on thinking about this topic here at the Institute for Government. Um, so look out for some more stuff from us on capital spending. Um, but please join me in thanking our panellists, Gus, Edwin, Anita, and Chris. all of you for joining us today online and in person. Um, our next in-person event uh, here at IFG is not until the 17th of October when we have a keynote speech from Lord Evans on upholding standards in public life. Uh, but we do have a very full uh, party conference programme in the meantime, so if you're coming up to Manchester or Liverpool in particular, uh, please do come along to some of our events there. Um, the recording and video of today's event will be online later on if you missed anything or want to watch anything back. Um, but otherwise, thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you.